welcome to Beyond Blathers, the podcast where we dive deeper into the insects, fish, and fossils you can find in Animal Crossing New Horizons. I'm Sophia Osborne. And I'm Olivia DeBercier. And if you want to support the show, check out our merch store at etsy.com slash shop slash beyond blathers to see the stickers and postcards we have for sale. And tell your friends about us. So this week is part two of frogs. We did tadpoles, an episode about sort of general frog adaptations and physiology. And then for this week, I went through all of my frog notes and pulled out sort of a handful of wacky frogs that I hadn't heard of or hadn't heard of that much, because hopefully you also haven't heard that much about them, just because I feel like probably a lot of us know at least a little bit about frogs, so I wanted to maybe give you something a little different this week. I also wanted to note that I won't talk too much about conservation this week, largely because trying to talk about conservation for a group this big is just like way too hard to do justice to in one episode. It's very much like if I tried to talk about all conservation of like birds or something. (laughs) So I'm just not even gonna try to do that today. I apologize. Yeah, I feel like we could really do a whole podcast on frogs, a whole separate thing or like a 10-part series or something. But but yeah, I think it's great to just get some appreciation for frogs. Yeah, I mean like my apartment is full of books about frogs right now. (laughs) So really like there is just so much out there. It, it's just kind of astonishing. Like, I actually got really overwhelmed like an hour ago because I had so many more notes and I was like, I can't, I can't do it all. <laughs> <laughs> like, I just have to stop. So, yeah. Well, where do you want to start? I'm thinking we start with like a couple really primitive groups. So groups that sort of, I guess on the family tree, seem to have separated out earlier than other frogs. So... To start, I'm going to bring you to New Zealand, such a cool place. And being an island, New Zealand has some interesting wildlife in that it's very, like, isolated from everything else. So New Zealand only has three native species of frog, which was really surprising to me. That isn't to say that there are only three species of frog on the island, because, of course, there are many invasive or non-native species on the island. But the three that they do have that are native all belong to the genus Leopelmatidae. And this is considered to be a relatively primitive and ancient genus. They're very much frogs, a few words, in that they sing very seldomly, unlike other frogs who, as we know, are extremely vocal. Two species, Arkies and Hamilton's frogs, are particularly proud froggy fathers. They will carry their tadpoles around on their backs. So what they do is the eggs are laid on this humid ground among plants. And when they hatch, the tadpoles will crawl onto the back of the father and they'll just sort of like run around with little babies on their backs. So they're very stoic little fellows. They're quiet, but but they're good dads. So that's the New Zealand frogs. And... Another group of frogs I wanted to talk about are the Ascaphidae. These are also primitive frogs. They are the tailed frogs. It's kind of a cool name. The group only contains two species, and both of those species live in North America, with most of that range being in the Pacific Northwest. 
unlike most other frogs, they still have their ribs. And as their name suggests, they have this like little tail and they also have a little muscle that helps to wag that tail. They also don't call like the New Zealand frogs. They don't make a lot of noise. Yeah, I think you mentioned last episode that there aren't any frogs that actually have tails. So could you talk a bit about what the tail is with these guys? Yeah. So yeah, it's not a true tail. What it actually is, is an extension of the cloaca. So this cloaca, if you don't know what that is, it's lovingly nicknamed the everything hole. (laughs) So birds, reptiles, and amphibians all have cloacas. It's you know, in highly simplified terms, it's sort of an exit hole for wastes, but it's also used for reproduction. And in this case, the cloaca has kind of inverted and now they have this sort of triangular short tail. I should have mentioned it's not like long. It's very, it's just like a little piece. It looks like a little, almost like a horn, but on their butt. (laughs) And it's used for (laughs) internal reproduction. Amazingly, Something I read about the Ascaphidae, the tailed frogs, is that they are a really long-lived two species. So the tadpoles of a tailed frog can take between one to seven years to develop, though normally it takes on average like four years. And at least according to the BC government paper I read, they are the longest-lived anorin species at 15 to 20 years. So remember from last episode, anorin means frogs and toads. And the other thing too is that they only reach sexual maturity at eight to nine years old. And this is, you know, really cool because like you got to think eight to nine years old for a tiny little species that like probably doesn't have a lot of like I'm I'm sure they get eaten a lot. That just seems like a very long lifespan for something that seems relatively delicate. So I just thought that was kind of amazing. Yeah, I had no idea that there were frogs, let alone frogs here in BC that live that long. Yeah, they live in fast-flowing streams. So I'm, I can't imagine that they're really easy to find, but maybe? I'm not sure. I'd love to look for them. So I've been talking a lot about frogs that have interesting parental care, and I'm going to continue to talk about that because I think... It's just so cool that there's such a diversity of these weird parental care situations. So there's a frog or I guess a toad called the midwife toad, and it lives throughout Europe and northwestern Africa. There's like a number of species of these. And the female will lay a string of eggs, like they'll all be kind of attached, and the male will fertilize them. And then he'll take that string of eggs and wrap them around his legs and then sort of shuffles them up so they sit kind of on the back and legs. And he'll just like walk around with these, this like pants made out of eggs. And (laughs) it just kind of reminds me of like parents who carry their kids in those little child backpacks. So yeah, when the tadpoles are ready to hatch, he just walks into some water and like drops them off. He's like, bye little babies. And that's how they operate, little midwife toad. Wow, there's lots of good frog dads. Yeah, tell me about it. Oh my gosh, we we still have so much more to talk about. I mean, okay, next <laughs> we have what I think is probably the best frog family name, the Pippids. I think it's so cute, the little Pippids, the Pippidae. So very cute name. So cute. And it's really a shame because they're kind of like the ugliest frogs. I feel (laughs) like 
Every single member of this family looks like a regular frog that got run over by a truck. Like they're just, they're so flat and oh yeah, <laughs> they're super ugly. So they're fully aquatic frogs. They tend to be bottom feeders. So they'll eat the stuff at the bottom of ponds or other water bodies. And as you can probably see, Sophia, is that their eggs are turned up to the sky so that they can watch for predators because most of the time, you know, their belly's safe because they're on the ground. So they just have to look above them. So they have like these tiny beady looking eyes. They don't have eyelids. So they're just kind of creepy looking. Yeah, I've looked up a picture of them and I, yeah, they do just look like they've been run over by a truck. That's accurate. And they're just like very like brownie gray kind of looking like they're very camouflaged for mud, which also doesn't add to their appeal. Yeah, they kind of look like dabs or something, but frogs. Yeah, like like flounder kind of energy. Flounders, yeah. Like really strange looking. Yeah, not great. But okay, so they also, I don't know if this makes things better or worse, depending on your perspective, but they also have a few species with very strange parental care. So this whole like carrying the eggs thing gets so extreme. So there's something called the Suriname toad, Latin name Pipa Pipa. Another really cute name. Ah, so cute. It's like Pika Pika. Yeah, I think, yeah, it's very Pokemon-y. And I guess this is kind of like a Pokemon. It's very dark. So just like a little warning, this is going to get a little bit gross. I don't know how else to say it. So basically, these flat-looking frogs, they try and look like floating leaves. They're very brown, gray colored, super duper flat, and they'll just hang out at the bottom of the water. But when it's time to mate, they'll do this courtship ritual. So the male doesn't have normal vocal cords to call to a female just like other frogs do. So instead, he'll start snapping the bones in his throat to make a sort of vibration-y call. Just, I hate the idea of, like, snapping throat bones, but, you know. Yeah. We'll move on. And when he finds the female, he'll get on her back in a position called amplexus. This is sort of the mating position. And while he's on her back, she'll start doing, like, these wild gymnastics, these somersaults. So they'll do the somersaulting, and then after a while, they'll both be on their backs in the water, so still in amplexus, and then the female will start laying eggs. The male starts fertilizing these eggs and he'll sort of catch them and kind of smush them between him and the female's back. So at this point, the eggs will stick onto the back of the female. And then once the mating is over, the female will sort of go on her merry way. She'll have a large number of eggs on her back. And then something really creepy happens. So her skin will actually begin to grow over the eggs that are stuck to her back. And eventually, the eggs will be sitting in these sort of pockets of skin so that they look like her back looks all sort of pockmarked and gooey. It's very gross. It reminds me of, I don't know if you have this like memory of winning prizes as a child. And sometimes you'd get one of those like rubbery balls that was sort of like a stress ball. And when you squish it, like little, like the little like gooey stuff on the inside will like squeeze out. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, it, I don't know. I ha- This is a very hard thing to like, but that's what it looks like to me. Like, it's just like gooey and you can kind of see the eggs in these holes in her back. 
So very strange. It sounds so gross. <laughs> it gets so much worse. So finally, when it's time for the eggs to hatch, one of two things will happen. So in some species, tadpoles will hatch out of the female. And in other species, these fully formed froglets will start to like burst out of her skin. And like I was watching a video of this and they're like pale little bodies will start like sticking their arms up and waving and like squirming out of her skin. And then they like they honestly pop out like the worst zit popping video you've ever seen. It's it's a little bit like I am not a squeamish person, but it was a lot. It was quite gross. Yeah, this is really giving me body horror. Like I'm very squicked out right now. Yeah. I mean, if you're curious, uh, you just have to Google the Suriname toad eggs hatch or something and you'll find it. At your own risk. It is a very interesting video. But yeah, do be aware that it is pretty gross. And on like a less, I, I should do something a little less gross for the Suriname toad. They also have these little star-shaped ends to their toes. And apparently that's to help them find food. It still looks a little off, <laughs> but a little less off than like small mini U's like popping out of your back like zits. So, you know, I'll give them a little credit there. It's a little <laughs> bit like the star-nosed mole, but like its nose on multiple fingers, I guess. Um, yeah. Moving on. <laughs> Maybe I won't like, I just need to move on from this. It's just a lot. Okay. Last parenting thing, kind of, there are two species or, okay, there were two species called Riobatracus silis and Vitellinus. They, it's just Latin names. I'm sorry. I don't have common names for you. But these females or the females of these species would actually swallow their tadpoles and the tadpoles would develop inside their stomach and then pop out as froglets. Which is amazing. I didn't know that wow. things could do that. But I guess they can't now because uh, the two species are probably extinct. Oh. So it's a real bummer. <laughs> but uh, I had to include that one even though it's a bit sad. Wow. Yeah, there's just so many cool mating and like parental adaptations. Yeah. And I guess this this is sort of kind of related to that weird adaptation, but it's not an adaptation. It's like a human discovery relating to frogs. So are you familiar with the African clawed frog? It's like a very common pet. No. No. I had like a neighbor <laughs> growing up who had one. So I feel like I was like exposed to these. Oh. Again, just sort of those flat looking frogs. They're aquatic. So I guess back in the day, they actually used these frogs as a pregnancy test. So to explain, in the 1930s, a zoologist called Lancelot Hogbin was studying hormones and he was injecting various hormones into frogs. By happenstance, he noticed that when he injected the hormones of an ox into a frog, the frog started laying eggs. That's simplifying it, but that's the gist. <laughs> and he realized that he could use this as a pregnancy test. So I was reading an article by Ed Young in The Atlantic. He writes really good science articles. And this one was called How a Frog Became the First Mainstream Pregnancy Test. So if you want to read more details, you can check that out. Um, but here's a little quote from it. So uh, Young writes, the hogbin test was simple. Collect a woman's urine and inject it fresh and untreated under the skin of a female xenopus, which is 
the kind of frog this was. Then, wait. If the woman is pregnant, between 5 and 12 hours later, the frog will produce a cluster of millimeter-sized black and white spheres. The results were reliable. One researcher reported that after injecting 150 frogs, he never got any false positives and only missed three actual pregnancies. And as one doctor wrote to Hogman's colleagues, quote, Thank you for your report on the pregnancy test on Miss X. You may be interested to know that of one GP of many years standing, one specialist gynecologist and one frog, only the frog was correct, end quote. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. I guess prior to the frog test, a much more unpleasant test was used in which rabbits or mice would be injected with the urine, and then they would be dissected to see if they had the telltale signs of ovarian changes. So yeah, a little, (laughs) a bit higher of a death toll, although I can't imagine that a lot of the frogs were doing super well, but... It sounds kind of expensive too. Yeah, it... It definitely seems like a lot of effort. Like, it's so wild to think about. Like, another article I was reading by Rachel Neuer in the Smithsonian Magazine reads, quote, Immunological test kits finally replaced the African clawed frog in the 1960s and were rapidly taken up by private companies and feminist organizations offering diagnostic services directly to women. The first over-the-counter home test was sold in pharmacies in the early 1970s, but it resembled a small chemistry set and so was not user-friendly. It was not until 1988 that the first recognizably modern one-step stick hit the shelves. Wow, that's so interesting. Yeah, I, I had never really thought about this. Like, man, back then you just would have to, like, kind of guess, I suppose, like, yeah. You'd be like, uh, oh, might be pregnant. Better wait a little while and just see. Like Or you're like injecting animals with your urine, which is just not worth it to me. Yeah, and like it seems also like from what I read that that wasn't like I get the sense that maybe that was like an expensive thing to do, or like um maybe with the frogs they were able to do it more, but like with the frogs and the or sorry, with the rabbits and the mice, I think they said like six thousand rabbits died in a year. Which is sad, but also, like, not as many as you would expect. Like, imagine how many pregnancy tests are taken in a year. Like, um, nowadays, I think, you know, it's it's not that many. So I I wonder if, like, only wealthy women were doing it or something. Yeah, I wouldn't imagine that most people would be doing that. Yeah. So that's kind of cool. I really didn't expect to be reading that about frogs. Yeah, such an interesting story. Anyway, moving on from... All the reproductive stuff. I did want to talk about gliding frogs. Have you ever seen a video of one of these, Sophia? No, I'm realizing I know nothing about frogs. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's good. This is all new and exciting. So gliding frogs, you know, we were talking about like the creepy toes of the Suriname toad, but these toes are like happy toes. They're like jazz hands. Um, And so the (laughs) gliding frogs have these long toes with big webs between them and they will go flying or maybe as it's better described they will go falling with style so they will (laughs) glide through forest canopies with their outstretched arms and really there's many species of flying or gliding frogs lots of them you know look pretty similar the gliding tree frog in particular looks a bit like a red-eyed tree frog, although its eyes are much more dark red. I don't know if it makes it cuter or like a little bit more sinister, but I'm intrigued. And 
A really cool video I saw was them coming together to mate and lay their eggs on these trees above water. So, you know, this way when the tadpoles hatch, they can make their very first airborne trip through the air to the water below. But it was really cool because they were all together and there were some like gliding onto the leaves and lots of frogs like jumping over each other. They were kind of amazing to see. There were like 60 of them on this one, you know, little section of a tree. One of the largest of these gliding froggy species is Wallace's flying frog. It's a species from Malaysia and Borneo. And this frog lives most of its life in the trees, except when it's time to reproduce. Interestingly, they apparently prefer to lay their eggs in wallowing holes left by the Asian rhinoceros, who unfortunately is rapidly going extinct. So that might actually be a bit of an issue for the frog in the future. Wow, these are amazing looking. Yeah, they're really beautiful. And like they're they're quite large as far as frogs go. Like their feet are so big. Oh my gosh. I love their coloring too. Yeah, they've got like an orange belly and kind of, I don't know, like the texture is like smooth, but also they've got kind of speckles. They're very artistic looking. And their feet are orange and black. Yeah, it kind of looks like ink stains on like the webbing. It's really cool. Yeah. Yeah, so that's one of the more famous ones. And like, really, their toes are so long. They look like they've got like swimming flippers on their feet. They're really cute. And they're also, I should mention that their their little toe pads to help grab onto trees are quite enlarged. And so they're even better at like, as they pass a branch, they're able to grab on really well. But they're definitely fun to watch. There's some really good videos as well online about these ones. Yeah, their feet look very useful. Now, moving on from the tropical groups here, I wanted to think about uh, and talk about some of my more local species here in Alberta. So my neighborhood frog is called the wood frog. So the wood frog is a species that is quite widely distributed and is one of the most northern surviving frogs. Its range goes right up to the end of the Arctic tree line. So this is really a group that survives truly frigid winters. Even here in Edmonton, our worst winters can hit up to minus 45 degrees Celsius with wind chill, which is about minus 49 degrees Fahrenheit. So really, really cold. Once winter rolls around, the wood frogs have got to find shelter. They aren't very good at digging. So instead, they'll huddle under some leaf litter. And then once the body really starts to feel the chill, they will begin producing a lot of urine. So it's a little weird, but bear with me. So instead of peeing out this urine, the frogs redivert the urea, which is inside the urine, to their bloodstream. As the water in their blood begins to freeze as the temperatures go below zero, the water inside the cells gets pulled out. And the liver starts to produce a lot of sugar and something called glycogen. And all of this stuff starts mixing in the bloodstream and the sugar, glycogen, and urea gets pulled into the cell. So all of these components are really important because it changes the flow of water through the cells. And this is happening through osmosis. So, sorry, I'm getting really sciencey here, but basically having the sugar and the urea and all of that in the cell changes the concentration of water to be lower inside the cell. And that way through osmosis, this results in water being pulled into the cell. So it's coming back in. So without all that 
you know, stuff taking up the cell, the cell would start to shrivel up because the water's not there to keep those cell walls up. And if the cell walls collapse and implode, the entire frog would just like implode and shrivel up and it would be really terrible. So that's what all that, you know, urine production leads to. It, it helps keep that frog alive, but it won't keep it from freezing. That frog's body will freeze. Its heartbeat nearly stops. Its metabolic functions stop and two thirds of its body are frozen solid. The cells are still technically alive, but they're no longer communicating with each other. According to one scientist, um, I was reading this paper and they said if you dropped one, it would make a clinking sound. So this thing is basically a rock. Wow. And and so they can survive in like minus 45 degrees? Yeah. So, un well, yes and no. So under the leaf litter and the snow, it's really not going to get as cold as it will above all that snow. So at the lowest, we're looking at like minus 16 to minus 22 degrees Celsius, which is still really cold, but they do have some insulation. They do have some insulation. So that snow and those leaf layers are important to their survival. But yeah, once things start warming up, you know, things could have gotten that cold and spring comes and the frog literally just thaws out and starts hopping again. It's kind of amazing. There's videos of it, like a time lapse, and it really is very fast. Like they just melt and they sort of like pop right back up. They kind of stretch out a little and they're good to go. So <laughs> the other funny thing, though, is that like if you live here in Edmonton, you would know that summer is very fickle. It will warm up and be shorts weather. And then suddenly it'll be blizzarding the next day. That literally happened to me this week. Friday, I was out, no jacket. It was warm. It was like, you know, plus 10. And then the next day I'm out birding with a group of students and it was blizzarding so hard. <laughs> like we couldn't see anything. We're like looking for birds and it was hopeless. It was so funny. <laughs> so yeah, it, it's kind of wild. But you got to think for a frog, are they able to just freeze and thaw over and over? And amazingly, it looks like they can. So they are just built to deal with this. It's incredible. Another wild thing about this process is that research from Alaska showed that in 16 wild frogs that they studied over the course of two years, none of them actually died from this. So, you know, it's not a huge sample size, but that's not too bad for something that's like freezing solid. Yeah, wow. They sound very hardy, like all Edmontonians. That's right. They are truly, they should be our mascot. <laughs> yeah. Well, I know you said that you weren't going to talk a lot about conservation in this episode, but could you just give us like an overview of what some of the big conservation issues that frogs face are? Yeah, so it's likely that a lot of listeners have heard these issues before, but um, the main things are pollution and habitat loss. So frogs are really susceptible to pollution because they are so dependent on water, that, that water can carry lots of contaminants. And frogs are really so sensitive to these things because their skin is so porous. So we talked about that last week. So hopefully you remember that you know they can exchange gas through their skin. They can exchange a lot of water. So they can also exchange a lot of contaminants and pollution. Frogs are called indicator species because they're one of those organisms where they will be the first ones to have a population hit 
if there is a problem with the ecosystem, if there's some sort of strange contaminant in the area or a disease, they're usually the, the first ones to go down. They're sort of a canary in the coal mine. So you might hear that term thrown around before indicator species, and that's what that is. There's, of course, other problems like the chytrid fungus, which you may have heard of if you're into frogs or conservation biology, or maybe you've been to like a zoo or aquarium in the past like 20 years. They talk about it a lot. And this is a fungus that causes a condition called chytridiomycosis, and it'll cause that in amphibians and can be very deadly to those amphibians. I'm not going to talk about this more just because it's a very complicated issue that I don't really understand. And honestly, the scientific community also still doesn't know very much about it at all, despite us having been concerned about it for decades. Like people have known about it for a long time. And a lot of places, like a lot of institutions and even researchers will blame chytrid fungus for this global amphibian decline, but it's really likely that a combination of factors are threatening amphibians and the evidence for how exactly chytrid fungus is affecting frogs is just really unclear. We, we just don't know. It's complicated. So yeah, sorry, that is not maybe the most helpful thing to hear, but it's also good to know because a lot of news articles will immediately point the finger at chytrid fungus just because it's sort of the first thing that comes up if you Google amphibian decline. Right. Yeah. Anyway, so I will also mention that there's a number of species that are doing almost too well. So many species of frogs have actually become invasive. So one of the biggest examples of these are the cane toads, otherwise known as the marine toad in Australia. And what happened here was that back in the early 20th century, Australia was really struggling with beetle pests in their sugarcane crops. And this is, of course, before we had all of these amazing agricultural technology inventions that helped us to deal with pests. So at the time, toads were brought in from Central and South America to control the pests that were eating the sugarcane crops by eating those pests. Problem was, these toads, the cane toads, became a much bigger problem than the pest managers thought at the time. Cane toads are voracious predators. They'll eat whatever they can find and catch and fit in their mouths. And of course, they went on and ate all kinds of wildlife. Cane toads are also extremely toxic to predators. And then to add to this, they also have no natural predators in Australia. So these are very tough critters that nothing on the continent wants to eat. And then to make matters worse, they can lay between 8,000 and 30,000 eggs in each batch. Wow, yeah. Another problem is that sometimes animals do want to eat them. <laughs> and so the toads are basically like walking poison. So Australian predators like quolls or iguana lizards will eat them and then die. And luckily, it seems like some of these predators are smartening up and starting to avoid the toad snacks. They're starting to see some behavioral adaptation. But the toads still outcompete other native wildlife, like the rainbow bee-eater birds for burrows. And they'll even eat bird nestlings. So yeah, it's really rough. And they are definitely spreading across Australia. So a lot of people are trying very hard to get rid of them and to keep them from spreading any further. So it is a bit of a, a quite a concern. Yeah, I definitely heard about them before. They're kind of like an iconic invasive species. Right? <laughs> it's and it, there's just so many places where people have introduced toads and other frogs 
for various reasons, either released pets or, yeah, this, like, weird form of pest control. And, yeah, it almost always ends just really badly. I mean, that whole chytrid fungus thing, there's a lot of articles about, like, these, you know, released pets carrying chytrid fungus and that concern. So, also, disease is a big problem. Like, you don't want to introduce things because they can bring disease. It's just a lot. But... I do want to end on some good news. So despite the challenges that frogs are facing in the wild, they are kind of lucky in the sense that people like frogs. And there's a lot of conservation groups that are trying to save species that are on the brink of extinction. There's all kinds of breeding programs and amazing organizations out there. I know here in Alberta, there's a lot of effort to recover populations of the northern leopard frog that operation is largely out of the Calgary Zoo and the Edmonton Valley Zoo and then various other partner organizations. So that's pretty great. And what's also helpful about these breeding programs is that we learn a lot about how frogs breed and, you know, how changes in their environment could be affecting them. They are one of those creatures that like we are finding new species even today. And so there are a lot of cryptic species. There's a lot of a lot of stuff we don't know about frogs. They're a really diverse group, as we've learned like between last episode where I tried to like make all these generalizations about a whole group. And then today we talk about all these very strange exceptions and they're amazing animals. Like I, I love them and like reading about them felt like such a, I, I felt like such a kid again reading about frogs. <laughs> yeah, totally. I really enjoyed hearing about all these different frogs and they're just so surprising and unexpected. Yeah. So those are my frog facts for you today. We've learned about frogs that can tell you when you're expecting, but may not be able to tell you what to expect. We've talked about frogs that soar through the air or freeze solid enough to be used as a puck in a hockey game. And we've talked all about the bizarre and slightly horrible ways baby frogs come to be. So I hope you enjoyed that. (laughs) Totally. Well, thank you so much, Olivia. Such a fun episode. And thanks everyone for listening. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Beyond Blathers and check out our TikTok at Beyond underscore Blathers. And don't forget to take a look at our shop at Etsy.com slash shop slash Beyond Blathers. Tune in next week to learn more about the insects, fish, and fossils you can find in Animal Crossing New Horizons. Bye. Bye. Bye.